Romans chapter 8. Let's begin once again at verse 28. Brethren, let us hear the word of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of this precious word. <clears throat> well, having considered numerous passages from Scripture, uh, we defined God's sovereignty as his absolute control over the entire created order. People, places, things, and events according to his eternal purpose. <clears throat> that being established, we have considered the words purpose and foreknowledge as they relate to God's sovereign plan. Now that brings us to the word predestination. <clears throat> it is important for us to know that when we speak of God's purpose, God's foreknowledge and God's predestination that we are speaking what is called God's decree. So before we take up the word predestination in any detail tonight, we want to consider briefly this subject of God's decree. Uh, God willing tonight, we want to consider these particular points. First of all, the meaning of God's decree, and then the meaning of predestination, and finally the goal of predestination. Again, these are not expositions. Uh, we are studying through uh, more with word studies and topical doctrinal studies, but we do try to unfold certain passages as they relate directly to what we're doing. <coughs> now, let's consider then first the meaning of God's decree. We studied the word purpose first, and that comes from a Greek word which means plan, purpose, resolve, will. The verb from which this noun is taken originally meant to set before oneself. To set before oneself. The idea is of a person setting a plan of action before himself, and this presupposes the person's considering his goal, his course of conduct, and his determination to carry it through. He looks at it, he thinks about how he'll bring it to pass, and then determines to do it. <clears throat> now we observe that every time the word purpose was applied to God, it spoke of his eternal purpose of grace in Jesus Christ given to a particular people before the foundation of the world. And 
it is often connected with the words foreknowledge or predestination, or as in the case of Romans 8, which we've read, both of those words. Purpose, foreknowing, predestination. They all fall out in that particular pattern here. <clears throat> now, we then considered the word foreknowledge. That's what we looked at last week, and, and uh, the verb foreknow. And from the perspective of human knowledge, as we saw, the verb foreknow means to know beforehand, to know already, or to have foreknowledge. However, when applied to God and His divine knowledge, it's used in a slightly different way. To foreknow takes on the meaning to enter into relationship with before. Or to choose or determine before. Or even to love before. Foreknowledge does not mean that God looked into the future and chose those that He knew would believe. Rather, it speaks of God's eternal love for His people. Or we could even say it this way. When we speak of the word foreknowledge, we're speaking of love before time. <clears throat> the word know, again, as we have seen, is often used in Scripture to speak of intimate knowledge, physical union, or love itself. Foreknowledge in this sense speaks of God's gracious purpose before the foundation of the world to engage in a loving relationship with His people, whom He did foreknow, those whom He set His love on before time, He did predestinate. This is what Paul is pointing to here. <clears throat> So when we speak of God loving and purposing to save sinners from before the foundation of the world, we are speaking of God's decree. Now what do we mean by God's decree? And it's true those two words are not found together in the scriptures. But as with other theological terms... <clears throat> The concept is found throughout the Bible. We want to be very careful. It's easy for us to come up with terms that are not in the Bible and to begin to uh, use them in such a way that ultimately they become unbiblical because we finally divorce them from their biblical root, their biblical meaning. They are, are simply things that we see in Scripture, that are unfolded in Scripture, and we come up with terms to try to capture what's being said in, in, in this great idea before us. Uh, and uh, I use the, the examples all the time of the Trinity or the Millennium. Those words are not in the Bible. But how, how do we describe this, this incredible and extraordinary doctrine that we find throughout the scriptures of someone called the Father, who is called God, and someone who is called the Son, who is called God, and someone who is called the Spirit, and he's called God. And yet, the scriptures make very plain that there's but one God. Well, the word Trinity, triunity, is the word we use to describe that. So, 
It is the same here with this decree. God's decree. Now using the language of Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 9, the shorter catechism defines God's decree this way. Question, what are the decrees of God? Answer, the decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will, all biblical language, whereby for His own glory He hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. In other words, brethren, before the foundation of the world, God purposed to save certain sinners by His grace through Jesus Christ, and He is working all things in history to bring this to pass. And this is what all of these verses that we've been looking at now for weeks are pointing us to. When we take all of the evidence and put it all together, we find that God purposed to do something. And that purposing to do something is according to His grace, not according to what men do. And it is according to His love in Christ, given to these particular sinners before the foundation of the world. Purpose, foreknowledge, predestination, Grace, Jesus Christ, it, these words are always found uh, kind of clustered around one another. So, we're attempting then to take all of those and define that, or at least describe that, with the word decree. God's decree. Now, when you read the books on theology, you will sometimes find the word uh, the word plural and sometimes singular. I, I prefer singular. I believe God has one purpose. There are certain things that we may take and look at individually that make up that one purpose. But I, I think it's less confusing to speak of God's decree rather than God's decrees. The plural use is because it is the idea of taking those various components and looking at them sometimes as individual decrees, election, reprobation, various others. But uh, <clears throat> I think uh, what we find in Scripture is one sovereign, eternal purpose of God. And all the things that we see unfolded in Scripture are a part of that unfolding purpose of God. When you talk to me privately, and when I teach most of the time, uh, I prefer simply biblical language, speaking of God's purpose, and that word purpose is used over and over in the scriptures, and the words foreknowledge and predestination. But I'm simply telling you that theologically, when we take purpose, foreknowledge, and predestination, and take all that mass of, of scripture together, the very clear picture is that God willed something. God decreed something. And therefore, the theological term, God's decree. When we deal with these things, we're, we're often dealing with uh, issues that are sometimes called the covenant of redemption, uh, the covenant of grace. And there is disagreement among those who believe in the sovereign grace of God as to... Uh, whether there is a covenant of redemption and a covenant of grace or whether it's just all a covenant of grace and 
of course, then we get into the battle of the theological terms. At least in my own mind, what clears these things up and makes it refreshingly clear is to stay with the fact that it says God has a purpose. His purpose is to save certain sinners. And He has purposed, foreknown them, and predestinated them. These are scriptural terms that are unarguable. <clears throat> so, these are all then the issue of God's decree. Before the foundation of the world, God purposed to save certain sinners by His grace through Jesus Christ and is working all things in history to bring this to pass. To pass. We know that all things work together for good to them, specific group of people that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom, meaning them, He did foreknow, He also did predestinate, that's the whom and the them, to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn, that's Christ, be the firstborn among many brethren, that's God's children, His elect, the church, the sheep, those that believe, disciples, at least that are regenerate. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Them. Notice, them. It's them. Whom? Them. A specific certain group of people. Them he also called, and whom he called them he also justified, and whom he justified them he also glorified. Now, in order to accomplish this purpose, this love before time, God created the world and the universe as His theater for the unfolding drama of redemption. Numerous words and phrases point to this decree or purpose of God. We could literally study for weeks the vast number of verses that have to do with this subject. And it would be a wonderful study, but we're going to press on. But we're going to look at some of them. And uh, just to give you some idea of the evidence for God's decree. You know, there are people that, that like to make arguments like, well, you know, the, the word decree... Uh, you know, you never find God's decree in the Bible, and therefore that's just a theological construct, and it's something that these people that, you know, for some reason like this fatalistic doctrine, you know, of all, you know, they use this term to try to justify their position. And brethren, that is historically not the case whatsoever. What, what those who hold this doctrine have done is gone to the Word of God, and they have intensely studied the Hebrew and the Greek, and they have taken the mass of Scripture, which we'll only scratch a little bit tonight, and having seen all of these things that speak of purpose and foreknowledge and predestination and God's will and His appointing in all of these things, they said, it's clear God has a purpose. And He's working it out. And it's a purpose 
conceived before creation, before the foundation of the world. Let's look at some of these verses. Now the word decree is in the Bible. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. I will declare the decree. Let's turn there just for a moment and look at it. Psalm chapter 2. In the context, Psalm 2 says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, against His Messiah, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. In other, in other words, we will not have them to rule over us. Here we see the wickedness of men, the rulers of the earth, rising up and saying, We'll rule ourselves. We will not be ruled by God. And it says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The ruler of all the earth will laugh at such foolish talk. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his, in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Why does he deride? Why does he laugh at the puny thoughts and rebellions of men? Because I have set my king to rule. I will, God says, declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. And now we have something here to lay a hold of. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. We're told in the epistle to the Hebrews that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have the idea of a decree. God determining to set His King over all the nations and kings of the world. And that King is the Lord Jesus Christ. God's purpose, God's decree is that Jesus Christ be the King over all the earth. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And we know that this is speaking of the Lord Jesus. He will rule and reign. And this is prophesied all through the minor and the major prophets. And we see it come to pass when the Lord Jesus comes, declaring Himself to be the King and inaugurating the kingdom in His coming. <clears throat> well, I don't want to get caught up there. This is a glorious theme, but we press on. The whole idea is that God has a purpose. Now, <clears throat> The Word of God uses the verb appoint. Job chapter 23, verse 14. For He, God, performeth the thing that is appointed for me. Appointed for me. He doesn't just say, well, I'm just out here doing whatever I want, because I want, as much as I want. He says, no, God is working out what He has appointed for me. Luke chapter 22, verse 
verse 22, Truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. Truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. The word here, to determine, means to appoint, to ordain. <clears throat> Acts 16, verse 26 says, And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined, same word, hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Why do you live in Pensacola? Because God's ordained it. Whatever the providential circumstances and details in the working out of that providence, you are here by the appointment of God. That should give you some comfort. Now, in each of these passages, what is clearly being pointed to is something that God has purposed. God has appointed. God has ordained. I especially point there to Acts 16, where Paul, preaching to the Gentiles on Mars Hill, tells them that God has made one blood, of one blood, all nations of men, for to dwell on the face of the earth, and he's determined the times, the times to be appointed, and the bounds of the habitation. In other words, the things that fall out, and the very places where we live, and the very boundaries of all of those things are part of God's appointment. Say, I don't understand all that. Well, I don't either. Clearly, if we understood all of it, we would be God. He's the one doing it. He is eternal. We are finite. So, uh, though there is mystery as far as to how God in His wisdom, in His goodness, hath so ordained things, it is still the clear declaration of the Word of God. The Word of God, thirdly, uses the phrase determinate counsel and foreknowledge. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Him, meaning the Lord Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The Lord Jesus here. God's anointed, God's Son, the one who will rule and reign over the feeble kings of the earth, was delivered by the determinate counsel. God purposed it. There was no mistake. There was no accident. When Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, he was doing exactly what he wanted to do. And yet, in so doing, he was fulfilling the sovereign purpose of God. Now, Acts chapter 4, verse 28 says, For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel 
determined before to be done. And the words translated determined before are actually the Greek words that we're going to see in a few minutes are translated predestination. In other words, everything that happened regarding the, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of the details, everything that fell out between uh, uh, Herod and Pilate, the, the Jews and the Gentiles and the Lord Jesus Christ, being hung upon the cross of Calvary was all God's sovereign purpose. And yet, without any hesitation, the people that crucified Him were held responsible. It would be good for me right now, I probably should have done this before we launched into these verses, but it would be good for me to remind you of some things that we hold. And, uh, and this is something that's very important for us to see. Brethren, the Scriptures teach... And I know, I know that people argue about this. I know that people uh, disagree with this. But brethren, I stand before you and say with all of my heart, having looked at these things for years, having pleaded with the Lord for wisdom, and, and not holding myself up as the final authority, simply saying, looking at it, the Scriptures say in the plainest words, it cannot be escaped, in the plainest words, God is absolutely sovereign. He rules over everything. But equally as strongly, the Scriptures show us that men are responsible. Men are responsible. Within the sovereign rule of God, He has so ordained in His inscrutable wisdom that men do what they will, and yet they fulfill exactly what He has purposed. The Scriptures the third thing to remember here is that as the Scriptures set forth the absolute sovereignty of God, the responsibility of men, they also defend to the max the goodness of God. Never once is God charged with doing evil. Yes, those are difficult things to hold never maintained otherwise. But they are the, the teaching of Scripture. Now, <clears throat> one's argument then has to be with the Scriptures, not particularly a sect of people. So, that's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 4, verse 28. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determine before to be done. In chapter 2 and in here in chapter 4 of Acts, we have clear declarations of God's absolute sovereignty and at the same time, clear declaration of men's responsibility and their culpability. It is not said in Acts 4 that because God ordained it, no one was guilty at the crucifixion. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, You with wicked hands crucified. The Lord of glory. Now, <clears throat> Acts chapter 10 says this, And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. The Lord Jesus Christ is the judge. How is it that he is the judge? He has been appointed by God. The very idea of appointment, the determinate counsel, the foreknowledge of God, all of these things speak of a plan 
a design, a purpose. A purpose. And we're hearing what the purpose is if we look at all the passages that have to do with these words. Now, <clears throat> the Word of God also uses the phrase, the counsel of His will and pleasure. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10 the Lord declares, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. What I've determined to do, it's going to come to pass. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 gives us how, uh, uh, what the boundaries of that, uh, that, that counsel is. It says, Who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. He worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. The Word of God also uses, as I have said, uh, throughout the evening, the word purpose. Romans 8.28, who are called according to His purpose. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, that uh, we are called with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which He purposed in Christ Jesus, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And... Uh, we also see it in Ephesians 1.9. Having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He hath purposed, which He hath purposed in Himself. And finally, the Word of God uses the word predestination. Predestination. Now the word predestination is a Bible word. That is not a theological term that we come up with in order to describe something we see in the Scriptures. That is a, that is a word that the Holy Spirit inspired the sacred writers to use in order to reveal to us the mind of God. John Calvin the Puritans did not put the word predestination in the Bible. The Holy Spirit did. And therefore, you, if you call yourself a Christian, you must, emphasis on must, you must believe in predestination. Now you may define it differently than we're attempting to here. But you cannot deny the Word of God and still go on saying you're one of God's children. I'm not talking about Calvin's doctrine of predestination or Wesley's doctrine of predestination. I'm talking about the Bible word, predestination. It's in the Bible. It is taught in the Word of God. You must have the doctrine of predestination. Our prayer has to be Lord, how are we to understand this? Because it's here. Now, the first thing we want to understand, I think, it's important for us to get a hold of this as well, and we often don't think in these terms, creation and providence are the outworking of God's plan of redemption in Christ. Creation and providence aren't things that kind of just happened or, or something that kind of tags along in God's 
purpose of salvation. The whole reason God said, let there be light, was that glorious beginning of work which would unfold and establish a theater in which God works out His eternal purpose. Creation and providence, God's rule over all things, are a part, ultimately, of God's eternal purpose of redemption. Is that confusing? I'm hoping that's very clear. We very often think of creation as just something to argue with evolutionists about. But in a very real sense, it's a redemptive work of God. Not redemptive in the sense of purchasing our salvation, but in the sense that God created so that what He had determined to do would come to pass. And so it is, not only with creation, but providence as well. So when we speak of God's decree, especially when we're dealing with the subject of God purposing to save sinners, we're talking about creation, we're talking about providence, we're talking about predestination. Predestination as it is used in the Bible primarily points to God's saving purpose in Christ. There is, uh, throughout the history of, of theology, predestination has had a broad, a broad sense and a narrower sense. The broad sense is generally predestination, meaning God's rule and plan over all things. But the, the, the biblical writers use the term in the context of salvation. Now, this is not to separate it from God's decree. This is just a subdivision of God's decree. Now, that brings us then to the word predestination. We're finally there. I trust this excursion here into the idea of decree gives you some idea of why the word is used. Now, in the 1600s, the Dutch theologian Wilhelmus Abrockel wrote this. Due to repeated slanders by individuals with evil motives, the word predestination gives some offense, triggers prejudice, and is repulsive to people who are both ignorant and filled with resentment against this doctrine. This has led some to be of the opinion that it is preferable not to speak of this mystery. Since Scripture, however, bears such abundant testimony to this doctrine, since it is a matter of supreme importance, yielding a proper understanding of the entire way of salvation, and since it is a fountain of comfort and genuine sanctification, nothing must be held back. The entire counsel of God must be declared. And then he says something that, to me, sums it all up wonderfully. Everyone must strive 
to understand this doctrine well and apply it properly. You get the gist of what he's saying. He just said it so well it wouldn't any point in me doing anything other than quoting him. The whole whole idea, brethren, is this. And, And I trust that you see it. Of course, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here. But the thing is, already we've seen over and over and over for three weeks and going even further back that the scripture gives overwhelming testimony to the fact that God rules over all things. To deny it is to have a motive to deny it or to be blind. Either something has caused you to say, I won't take that or you can look and look and look and you just say, well, you can give me 400 verses here, but I don't see it. There can be no question that the Scriptures declare these things. You say, well, this puts us in a, in a, in a difficult place because there, there is evil and there are tragedies and there are all of these things that are so hard to deal with. Yes, they are. They are. But we cannot deny Scripture. We cannot deny what the Scriptures boldly say. In our attempts to understand, we may come to differing conclusions. But what we have here is a doctrine that says that God has a purpose. And the outworking of that purpose is why there is such a thing as creation. And within creation, there are events that unfold every day. Joyful ones and tragic ones. Ones that lift our hearts with praise and others that double us over in anguish and grief. And yet, the scriptures say, ruling over it all is our God. And in all of that, in ways that that are difficult and, and often inscrutable, God is working out this purpose to save his people from their sins. And Abrakel says, you need to understand that well and apply it properly. Because it's a very easy doctrine to abuse. There is no question. I myself have experienced this. There are times when you're in absolute anguish and it doesn't encourage you to have someone just come along and slap you on the back and say, well, praise the Lord, brother God's sovereign. In fact, there are times when that actually is indescribably painful. A brothel warns us We must never be light or foolish with how we handle this doctrine. Griefs are real. Sorrows and tragedies are real. The scriptures don't say, and with those that are weeping, just rebuke them and say, well, God's sovereign, get over it. It says, weep with them that weep. Rejoice with them that rejoice. 
This is all part of an outworking of what he's called us to. There are other abuses. There are people that say things like, well, God's sovereign. He's made a choice. So you can't choose. Don't even try. You say that's an exaggeration. No, I've heard people say that. That's not biblical evangelism. <laughs> that's not evangelism of any kind. I've heard it modified where people would say, well, you don't have a will, so don't try. Or your will's in bondage, so don't try to believe. Just pray that somehow or another God will let you believe. Brethren, you will never find Christ speaking that way. Amen. You will never find the apostles speaking that way. This is a doctrine that is easy to abuse. And there are times where those who see this, the 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 mountain of, of Scripture that speaks of these things, and they say, yes, these things are so, and then they take a partisan uh, 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 oh, I've lost the word, a, a, a partisan and antagonistic way of handling it. There are abuses that even come to the place where there are those who think that we we cannot go and preach the gospel to every creature because we don't know who the elect are. And in the name of one Bible doctrine, deny command of the Lord. So these things, brethren, I could go on and on. We want to take this doctrine, which has been made distinct in the nostril of many, and we want to understand it well, and we want to apply it properly. Properly understood, brethren, it is a foundation. It is a, it is a source of great joy and a great comfort. It is the solid foundation for God's people. But it can be used in such a way as to either turn people from the glories of the gospel or even become uh, a doctrine that gives no comfort, rather becomes opportunity for uh, rather callous or shallow handling. So what's the definition of the word then? What does predestination mean? Well, it comes from the Greek word prohorizo. Now this is a compound word that's made up of pro, which means beforehand, and horizo, which means to limit, to a point, to determine. Therefore, prohorizo means to decide beforehand or to determine ahead of time, to mark off beforehand. Rizzo means to decide beforehand or to determine ahead of time, to mark off beforehand. That's the picture. As a matter of fact, we get our word horizon from this word horizo. It's what marks off the boundary between sky and sea, is it not? Or sky and land. Whatever's out before you. So beforehand to mark out. Now, uh, we're about out of time for this evening. This might be a good place just to close off and come back to next week. But before we do that, I want to put a couple of things in context. 
We begin with Romans chapter 8. For whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Brethren, when we see this word predestination, it is always in the context of praise. It is always in the context of glorying in what God has done. Paul doesn't set these things forth generally in, in a sense of, of polemics. And uh, he's constantly in, 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 the, uh, in his epistles writing to, to battle certain errors. But he brings these up as doctrines of comfort, doctrines of encouragement, and doctrines to bring glory and honor and praise to God for what he has purposed in his foreknowledge and what he has predestined. And we see the glorious goal of that worked out in Christ's life. This is what we're going to end with this evening, but we'll pick back up with the thought, God willing, next week. It's in John 6. All of these words speaking about God having a purpose, God having a sovereign design. And what do we hear from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself? In verse 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Now we have to say uh, at least one thing here. If God's purpose were for Christ to save all men, then He has failed this purpose. Because it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. If God the Father gave him all, then all must infallibly be saved, or Christ failed his purpose. All that the Father giveth me. The very context of it shows us that it's not all men. It's the ones that we saw in Romans 8 are them. He says... All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The second part of this verse has been used in evangelism over and over and over through the years. Jesus won't cast people out if you'll just make a decision. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because He won't cast you out. That's bending what's being said here. The Lord Jesus Christ is saying, God the Father has given me a people. And every one of them that comes to me, I've made it my joyous purpose to keep and to preserve. They will never be cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. There it is. Speaking of purpose. The will. He's told me to do something. I've come to do it. That all which
which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. Of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him. This is synonymous with saying, this is his purpose. This is his design. This is what he has appointed me to do. That everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. There it is. I will raise Him up at the last day. God has given me a people. That's His will. I've come to do His will. And my will is His. That's what He said in John chapter 4. Here, Master, eat this food. Now, it's alright. Don't need it. I've got something else I'm feasting on right now. Where'd you get it? What is it? You've been out here talking to this woman. Where'd you get the food? My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me. What was He doing? Bringing a sinner woman to Himself. And she will never be cast out. Brethren, this is the doctrine of great comfort. A doctrine of great joy. But a doctrine that must be understood well and applied properly. That we might truly give Christ the glory and that we might truly receive the benefits and comfort from it as we ought. May God grant that we be good students of that. Let's pray. Blessed Father, we need Thee. Father, we we must have Thee Lord, when we come to these passages, we have to bow our heads before Thee and say, Surely there is much that is difficult for us to comprehend. Father, those of us who have embraced this, I am fairly certain, have spent hours at times sitting with people and sitting alone, digging through these scriptures and looking at them and puzzling and pondering before them. Go, Father, taken together, taken fairly in their context. They speak of a God who rules and reigns. They speak of men who are responsible. And they speak of a God whose goodness, as far as the testimony of Scripture goes, must be unchallenged. Father, we bow before Thee, for our minds are small. Come by Thy Spirit and help us to understand and use Thy Word according to Thy will. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 Four five zero 
3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.